Hello everyone and welcome to episode 8 of the Film Score Podcast. Today my guests are composing duo Mondo Boys, made up of Mike Griffin and Mike Shanslin. Mike Griffin is going to be the one who's talking first and talks more often. Mondo Boys are coming off a really strong 2020, particularly with their scores for She Dies Tomorrow, an art house horror film that's on Hulu. Mortuary Collection, a horror anthology that's playing on Shudder, and the Mel Gibson action Christmas film, Fat Man, which has just recently released on VOD. These are quite different scores, and it really shows the versatility that Mondo Boys have. While this conversation is about 50 minutes, our total conversation was just around 130 minutes, and you can find the whole thing on YouTube if you want to see us dive more in-depth about film in general. You can find the YouTube channel, it's The Film Score, as well as finding me on Twitter and Instagram, which is also at The Film Score, for more discussion on uh, film and film music. I hope you enjoy this first episode of 2021. I hope you have a good new year, and let's get on with it. Mondo boys, I, I appreciate you guys joining me tonight. Yeah, man, we're very happy to talk. We love to talk about movies and talk about music and stuff. I figured you have to. It's what you do for a living, so you, you better like it. It's kind of why, you know? So this is our studios. We have filmmakers over here, and honestly, like, more than half the time, directors over here, and we're yeah. just, like, talking about movies and just, right, like, yeah. getting nerdy and getting crazy, <laughs> you know? It's actually um, been a minute. We're doing an anime series right now, mm. and it's it's such that we're not like with a director in the room a lot. So yeah, this is kind of fun to like get more into the the heady film space. Is it too early to give info on the anime series you're working on? We've been told with this one, yeah, that we can't talk about it yet. But it's um, an anime series. What's cool about it actually is that it's kind of a western facing anime thing as far as the audience and who they're going to so we don't have to be super well steeped in the anime genre Mm -hmm. yeah i think it's which uh, is pretty unique in that yeah it's it's been fun so far yeah yeah yeah. so and and so we're kind of getting into it and we do have a major appreciation for like for anime Mm -hmm. it's an awesome like whole culture and subculture and it's cool that on this we can go crazy with some of the styles of it but not really know we don't have to be in any certain place in that in that genre. Right. So we can, we can dance around the confidential stuff. Dude, by the way, so many projects are all, it's always confidential. Like we can never, that's been until, so tough. Really until it's released. I know, until like they're ready to yeah. release everything. Honestly, if it was up to us, we'd be like doing a lot more of the process. And, yeah. Because and, we think that people think of score music as a little more inaccessible mm-hmm. than it really is. We love to have filmmakers over and we show them like, so many cool things yeah. that people are either intimidated or um, maybe they've had experiences before where it was uh, kind of a locked box. Right. And then right. And notes are always a huge deal mm-hmm. to the composer. And it's like this bristly thing. Yeah. But we are really not like that. And so if it was our preference, we would be sharing a lot more and being more inviting, you know, with people. Actually, would you guys mind expanding on that a little more? Because I think it's very much... Maybe not quite a locked box, but that a lot of time the composer is brought in after production's wrapped up, and like they're kind of off in their bubble. Like they'll send demos or snippets, like what they've been working on, and get some feedback. But it's still, I'd say it's like an arm's length relationship. Yeah, man. I think that we're trying to break new ground in that way. I think part of it is that it historically was a very different process, Mm -hmm. so this would not be practical. Sure. With, With Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann, it was a very different process. They would be writing it out, demoing it maybe on piano, mm-hmm. and then Hitchcock kind of hears it for the first time like on the stage. Yeah. I think that is why there's so many relics in our industry and in every... That's a relic. Yeah, it especially be... just the attitude of being inflexible with music. Yeah. You know, it's right. it's easy for us to write something and then flip it yeah. into something totally different. We love doing that, actually. But there is an attitude. What's so funny, dude, is like we are like, okay, cool. It's a redo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's going to be fun. And we're like, cool, it'll probably be better next time. And then we'll even like re- relay that to someone else in the process, like a musician that we're working with on, on a piece of And like they get more bristly yeah. than we do. And uh, we try to be kind of filmmaker mind as opposed to like musician mind. 
as mm-hmm. far as that kind of stuff. Very interesting. And everyone that I talk to always talks about how it's a collaborative process. So that bristliness, not to put anyone down, but it seems like it is kind of a choke point in that collaboration. Obviously, the the music aspect of it is typically considered the thing that is the most inaccessible for the director, like you mentioned, because almost every single time they're not a musician, they don't have musical background. They can get in and sure. edit, and you see people like Christopher Nolan who are getting really involved in the sound. Unless it's Charlie Chaplin or something, the directors aren't involved in actually making the music. So it's cool that you guys are actually trying to bring them in more and, and like really foster that collaboration. It's a lot better. Yeah. Okay. Because also, when a director or producer does know about music, it gets worse. It's true. It doesn't make yeah. it easier. It's it's great when somebody can come in and just say, I know nothing about music, but here's what I want. That's emotionally ideal. ideal. Because you don't want to really dive into the nitty gritty of different chords, different melodies. Because and, it you know, never works out that way. Right. Like, And that's, that's all about us. the emotion. Yes. And addressing their notes. Yeah. It's not about us like wanting to fly freely because we're artists and stuff. Honestly, their notes get less effective on the turnaround if they get music terms for whatever weird reason. Yeah, yeah. They have to stick to the layman's terms about it and stuff, Mm -hmm. and then we kind of go from there. It's it's funny you guys say that. I was watching an interview with with Harry Manfredini, the classic horror composer, and he was talking about some experience he had where he was working with the director, and the director said, oh, I, I think we need a cello in this part. And Manfredini's like, what does a cello sound like? He couldn't explain what it sounded like. He didn't know, but he just knew like, oh, cello, that's that's in pieces. I, I like that. Yeah, I think every project we have to learn the, the terms, like redefine terms. Yeah. Like what does vibey mean to this right, director? Right. And yeah, even if they say cellos, yeah. we like we realize right away, right, this is so-and-so talking. If they said cellos, they mean like this. Yeah, and, they and might not mean cellos. We have to learn, like honestly, the first two weeks on anything is just like... Yeah getting some terminology down because also mm-hmm. the communication is like a lot of this mm-hmm. and the temp kind of communicates a lot yeah. when you get to the yeah. notes and everything you got to be able to talk about it actually pretty easy it's easier than people think we don't want to hear about music theory and stuff it doesn't work you yeah. can't talk about it to your question about like it seems like there's the locked box and that there's a tough communication mm-hmm. and it's not only because music is hard to talk about it's like an attitude and a mentality that it's easy to fall into. There are composers out there who like, you know, really basically don't take notes. Yeah. They'll do some because you everyone has to, but mm-hmm. it becomes a thing. Yeah. And they put in their contract X amount of notes. Mm-hmm. Like we wouldn't we would never think about doing it. Like <laughs> it seems ridiculous to even consider. Because like honestly, we don't like to say this with a filmmaker who's gonna abuse it, but like we we like notes. Yeah. We want to do it. I think Four times you start to get into a, a good like it's been through the wash a couple times. Yeah, you end up in almost every case you end up with something that works better for the movie. We try to communi- communicate that to directors and producers without them abusing it. Hopefully, because yeah, yeah, you know there is a point too. You <laughs> sure. have to feel it out. Like sure. if the cue's in good shape mm-hmm. and sometimes further notes and more redos, you hit a point of no return. It drops diminishing off. returns. Diminishing returns. Yeah. You can kind of feel when that's happening. I appreciate not mentioning names of who those composers might be. Let's talk trash. <laughs> let's go. You start. You start. Yeah, this is. I'm, I'm changing this. This is a gossip show now. So let's. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're in. I'm gonna spill <laughs> all the dirt. <laughs> a score rag. It does sound a little egocentric because it's not Mondo Boys the movie. It's like this is right. The director's movie and their producers and the there's a whole company behind it and you guys mm-hmm. and every composer doing anything is there to help make the movie better and not like show off yeah. what you're capable of. It's kind right. of interesting because some people are actually legitimately brilliant and sure. I think it works for them to do that. Yeah, and then sure. they usually will like quit a project which just frees up more stuff for like us. <laughs> so I don't really mind. Because it's some people would kind of rather be making symphonies. Right. And they can do that, and it's really impressive, and they do brilliant film scores too. Mm-hmm. But in their heart, they'd rather be making an album or like writing a symphony. Yeah, when it comes down to it, this tends to be a different kind it's of job. It's different. You're, like, you're helping tell somebody else's story. And you're jumping around in genres. I mean, yeah. you, ha- you have to be. Mm-hmm. We're not going to write a symphony. We want to be writing film scores. Yeah. So I guess that's a huge difference. 
with some of the super brilliant people who would rather be doing other stuff in their heart. This is like exactly what we'd like to be doing. That's that's why I appreciate when it's the inverse, when it's someone who is doing solo work or writing symphonies, who's like, you know what, I'm going to do a film score every two or three years. Or Michael Abels, who was doing classical music for 30 years, and then Jordan Peele calls him up and says, hey, do you want to score this movie? And he's like, of course I do. Yeah, you can definitely make for some very interesting stuff. Pulling people out from symphony world and album world is Mm -hmm. brilliant. I was just watching last night, actually, Social Network. It was like, that was, I think, the first score from Reznor. Maybe not the first score, but was it the number one film? I'm sure there's someone who has an encyclopedic knowledge and would say, actually, they did this indie movie three years before. But I mean, for all intents and purposes, that was the first one. Dude, out of the box, totally brilliant. Like, that movie is brilliant. it's true. That movie is brilliant, but Mm -hmm. that score is so good yeah and it's honestly unique it's like even weird to kind of call it a score to be honest it doesn't hit your ears that way yeah but it works so brilliantly in the story and it, it is really score. Does. it definitely is score but yeah so that's someone who like dude i mean yeah he maybe making film music isn't his number one parts goal but dude brilliant chemistry there I don't know if you guys have heard their score to Mank, but they have gotten some criticism for like doing similar sounding music across their scores. Which is not really the case. Yeah, well, and, and also, there are tons of great composers who they have their sound and they stick yeah. with it. Like, mm-hmm. I yeah. was, I mean, I always right. talk about Philip Glass, like, I, I love him, but cool. you, th- you throw up any Philip Glass score, do you mean to go like, oh yeah, that that's him because that's his style. Like, there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with it. But their score in Mank, they're like, okay, you don't like the sound we've been doing? Like, unrecognizable. Except for the credits. I think the credits cue, I don't think it appears in the movie. It's the last song in the credits. And it's like, oh yeah, you can hear like the Reznor thing. But dude, honestly, they were doing interesting music in The Watchmen too. And there was a lot of right. it where it's like, yeah, th- this sounds like this kind of social network Reznor Ross thing. But there were a few cues in that. There's like that piano cue around the yeah. Tulsa stuff in Maybe. the first episode. Like this would not be reckoned. You wouldn't hear this. Like, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's really cool to see how they, they've they evolved into totally beyond just like what you would pigeonhole them. Dude, as. and it makes me think that they are super engaged in the film music thing. Mm-hmm. It's not like a, it's obviously not a side thing for them. Yeah. They are expanding big time. So I haven't seen the movie yet. I listen to everything that comes out, and I don't really have a problem with listening to something before I see the film, but obviously that's high on my priority list of things to yeah. watch. Dude, there's mm-hmm. a lot of good stuff out right now. There really is. Um, mm-hmm. I want to watch The Sound of Metal. Oh, I, I really want to see that. I mean, well, that's that's the problem. It's like working more than full-time at a, you know, and then mm-hmm. and then doing mm-hmm. all this stuff. It's like, where's the time to actually do yeah, 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 yeah. these mm-hmm. other things? Dude, and by the way... There's always like huge blind spots. Oh yeah, we no have matter no what. chance of catching up. We could take a year off and just watch yeah. movies the whole time. Yeah, and still no, have a bunch of blind spots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People did over lockdown the AFI 100. Like yeah. people try to watch it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. There's probably I probably know half of them maybe, but yeah. But you did have time to watch Fat Man. I did. Yeah. Cool. We appreciate you taking the time to check it out. I was excited about it because it's it's one of those films where once, like right around when the trailer launched, honestly, I don't watch trailers anymore because so often they, they give you a play-by-play of the film. What's the point? If, yeah. if it turns out a film is good, like hopefully I'll hear about it. I follow enough people online, I'll see it. But that was one where I, I did watch the trailer. Because you're probably mm-hmm. like, what the hell is exactly. this? Exactly. <laughs> it's like such a, a ridiculous premise. Like, mm-hmm. please give me a primer. Like, show yeah. me as much as you want to. <laughs> it's crazy. Exactly. Yeah, dude, we, were, we actually loved that trailer when it came out, too. There's been a few movies that, you know, happening kind of like, we're like, nothing but energy and love doing it. But we're like, all right, so, like, this is going to be one of those movies where, like, people are going to react really polarized. Sure. You know, you just kind of know it going in. But yeah. when that trailer came out, it's like, wow, this trailer is really cool. And honestly, a lot of the, honestly, we do not dive much into, like, comments or stuff like that and even honestly analysis on movies that we've been part of or our friends did we want those conversations to happen and for that to be the analysis world but with fat man we were like too curious to see (laughs) because the comments were like really cool and like really nice and a little polarizing but like in general it was such a clearly just fun 
idea right in a well-made trailer by the way which we had nothing to do with but it was well presented mm -hmm. to see the good version of it with the front foot forward was like super cool yeah and then the truth is people never know what they're getting into with the movie i felt this way with the she dies tomorrow trailer great trailer but i felt like people were gonna watch the movie and get a different experience than the trailer oh absolutely it's tough sometimes because at the end of the day, like, they're sending it out to a third party to make the trailer. They're making it in a way that's going to get the most attention. And it's like, there, yeah. there are films like Drive or Only, uh, Only God Forgives that, especially Only God Forgives, like, it seems like it's going to be a real action movie. And it turns mm -hmm. out it's like a weird art house film that happens to have these bursts of violence. You're right. I'd say like 95% of people who saw that movie after seeing the trailer hated it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a huge sure? Nicholas Winding Refn fan, so I knew yeah, what I was yeah. getting into. Dude, honestly, I think a lot of people like love Nicholas Winding Refn without yeah. even needing to see all of his stuff. Nicholas Winding Refn made the first 10 minutes of Drive. It's yeah. just like, great. I'm a fan yeah, forever. That's and like, all it takes. I think everyone's like, yeah, great. He's awesome. Yeah. I'm on board no matter what. Like you did like the best first sequence of a movie that you could like really kind of ever do. Mm -hmm. I don't know why either, by the way, but that first sequence of Drive is just like, it's perfect. It's, it's amazing. It's really amazing. Yeah. One of the things I think that's so effective in it is nothing happens in it. Ryan Gosling sitting in a car and then... Yeah driving and following the speed limit to fit in with everyone right it's so normal oh, and in a way it's it's so mundane and yet at the same yeah. time there are these huge stakes of oh like these right. four guys just robbed something and that's something i was actually talking with a friend of mine who was finishing up too old to die young and that was something else we were talking about how many mundane moments there are while at the same time at any second anyone could just get shot in the face great yeah there's Perfect. a real tension there i mean that's almost tarantino I mean, in a way, like they're so different. But what you're describing is like, yeah, you you have you set the stakes up in the right way, mm -hmm. um, and there's a gun in the room. Yeah, boom, you can t talk about coffee. Yeah, like you know, if it's structured the right way, mm -hmm. you have to be kind of brilliant to do it. But but both those guys, I think, do know how to do that. That opening scene hooks you so much, man. Totally, it hooks you so much. Yeah, it yeah. could go anywhere. But it's a brilliant movie, and yeah. if you just, I took me one more watch to be like, yeah, this is this is awesome. Obviously, I don't I don't want this episode to be about me, but that film I saw that in theaters like the week it opened, and when nice. I got home that night, I bought the soundtrack to it, and that was the first time I'd ever really been like, I need to listen to this music outside of the context of the film. I was like, I I have to have this, and I I've listened to it I don't know how many times. You know, you're right. That is kind of rare because we were kids. Getting, I mean, I would get the CD for yeah. Jurassic Park and stuff. Right, yeah. But it seems like that has been a while where I'm like, I need to you have need this to score. experience this outside of the movie. Dude, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah, that's been a big one lately. Really, especially. really good. There's a lot of great ones, but like, yeah, you're right. The compulsion to like go get it and it's, put it on in your room is yeah. pretty rare. Yeah. Did you hear the story about apparently the kind of the main impetus of, of that choice for the music, the kind of soft 80s-ish music for Drive? I feel like I should know this. I have no idea. So this is the story, at least. So first of all, the script was just floating around as like a genre script. It was floating around and someone wanted Gosling to, to do it, of course. Yeah. And uh, he, he read it and sort of essentially didn't want to do it. But his way of saying that was to say, look, if you get some crazy director, you get Nicholas Winding Refn to do it. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. then we can do it in an interesting right. way. Whoever that company was turned around, like got Nicholas Winding Refn <laughs> to do it. They probably told him Gosling's <laughs> in, you know? Yeah. And uh, so... Gosling has to go and pick up Nicholas Winding Refn, right? right? So he goes and picks him up, and Nicholas Winding Refn hops in the car and yeah. sees Gosling at the wheel. Mm -hmm. And Gosling had been playing this 80s stuff. Yeah. And he just saw it, and he was just like, right, yeah, this is the score. That's it. This is going to be the vibe. Like, this vibe is perfect. Yeah. Apparently, it went it went that way. I got to imagine Nicholas Winding Refn, like, has a little different experience, uh, if you were to tell how, why he wanted to do that. But uh, that works for me. I don't know. It's it's more fun to believe it. This speaks to getting in early, right? We think it's a no-brainer. And some composers think there's a certain time to get in. I think everyone has a different philosophy. And honestly, there's there's truth to a lot of different philosophies. Sure. Wait for the locked cut. Then you can jump in. That's yeah. smart. You don't really know what it is until you have the locked cut. But we can't help but just try to get in as early as possible. It speaks to something like that. When the experience comes together in such a way to be in the room and be able to like kind of respond to it and kind Absolutely. of know... 
maybe have a hand in, in shaping that concept. Mm-hmm. We think getting in early is just the best. Honestly, the movie is definitely created early by these directors in pre-production. And then from there, you're just kind of like playing catch up. And there's usually a gap between what, what actually happens, of course. And so we prefer to like at least hear about a script, talk to them at that time. Yeah, absolutely. It it gives us some insight for sure. Whatever we, the music we make from the script phase might not survive. I think it does help, but though, it helps. to have that extra round or two of like, this is what it could be. And then you see the picture, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But, the but it's nice to have know. the idea before you really like are and you might scoring crack it. the movie. You might crack it, and it might yeah. help like on set. I don't know if you've been able to check out. Another recent thing we did, the Mortuary Collection. I checked it out, totally unrelated to oh, talking no to you guys. Way. And I actually had I had no idea you you two did the score oh. until oh, so I cool. finished the movie and watched the credits. Oh, that's cool. That's man. so cool. Dude, this year has been so cool for us. All this yeah. stuff is coming out and it's, it's like a lot of fun. A lot of fun stuff to talk about. Yeah. So nice. I'm glad I'm glad you um, watched that. So that one the director, Ryan Spindell, mm-hmm. did have a couple pieces of music. Really, in reality, it's just the one. It's um, Fast and Sweet. Actually, yeah. wait. It's actually not even true. They shot to something that we recommended that we were going to then like, That's right. kind of replace. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we were part of the process. Like Spindell does try to get us in early. Yeah. It's a little awkward. I mean, in reality, it's like it can we be. want it to happen. Like yeah. We all want it to happen. But in truth, what score are we going to write before they've shot? Like, it's just not there. Yeah, score-wise, that can be really tricky. If it's like We, songs, we need to see picture. It, it's a little easier to do, I think. But yeah, Spindel like, says he would like us to score something uh, before he shoots. And then he can have yeah, it on set. Right, yeah. I mean, dude, I, I can see that being, like, so great. It's mm-hmm. just oh, another, like, kind of relic thing, like another old industry thing. We're just so not used to that process so mm-hmm. it'll we it'll take some effort to do that and figure it out but it could be worth it i mean there's there's good ideas about this stuff people try to get creative mm-hmm. in truth it does tend to fall back on the same old thing of basically you don't really need to start until locked picture and then you work for like i don't know two months three months and you're done it's tricky because it, it can be so much more than that in a good way it's so nice to be part of the conversation early on and really like be part of the development of the movie. I think somehow we kind of did with Mortuary, with all those songs and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think at least Ryan Spindell knew that we were there to take the baton. So it let him like at least know he can give us something. True. We were also writing a lot of score based on just concepts in the script. Mm -hmm. Just trying it out. Because there are so many different ways a horror movie can go. Right. Flavor-wise. Right. That tone that we ended up with yeah. working with Spindel, I don't know if that was our first instinct, which is great. Yeah, we were doing a lot of demos early with that movie. Like, we, dude, we've been working on that movie for, like, so many years. But it's a, it's a luxury because we're trying out different tones. And yeah. then Spindel's like, no, maybe. We just ended up finding a kind of different tone that's, like, kind of fun and subversive and, like, works in a lot of different ways that also provided contrast. Some of the main is not the scariest, darkest, grim horror stuff mm-hmm. that you're used to. And like it kind of started to create a contrast that the later scary stuff was a little surprising because you kind of think you're watching like a different movie mm-hmm. for some of it. Super serious and great at achieving that like kind of um, kind of 80s tone around like, you know, the Goonies world and Poltergeist world and like all kinds of other stuff. But you know what's funny though? He's like not a full-on retro filmmaker. We've tried to identify and like, right, okay, yeah. are we doing like eighties? It was it's not the case. Like yeah. he's he's a modern yeah. person, mm-hmm. and his movies are all actually totally modern. But he just has a taste. It's like a, just a unique vision and t- that at least references older horror stuff. It's definitely not full-on retro. Yeah. We get busted every time we do like actually <laughs> retro stuff. Right. But it's really funny with how ambiguous the time period is of mortuary collection dude i'll tell you this mm-hmm. i'm gonna jump in i'm gonna jump in there's a huge critic thing yeah. that developed where they've identified these different decades that i think go like back in time or something it's a pretty good theory like yeah. it kind of holds up pretty freaking well but no yeah. one was thinking that and i yeah. know that because we were always pressing like, okay where are we there were answers there were conversations but it, it wasn't like that it's not sequential but this is why i love to not 
be part of the analysis world and we don't chime in on it because it's just like it's great and i am that way i'm like a total subtextual analysis let's get crazy on youtube for movies that i love Mm -hmm. yeah but on the movies that that we're a part of you have to give that its own life it's honestly a form of respect we're not going to chime in or uh, honestly i don't even watch this or read this stuff it's just better to leave that in its own sure its own world sure i had no idea that there were these theories when i was younger i would look into some of those things because there's there so many youtube channels that are like film analysis and theory and at this point it's like i think it's interesting but it's like i don't have time for that but I don't buy that theory whatsoever. If you watch the second segment, it's obviously in some ways grounded in a particular time period, like with how the... So that's unprotected, right? On the college campus and stuff. Yeah. There are certain things that seem to really ground it with how the college feels and some Mm -hmm. of the dialogue. But at the same time, there's all sorts of anachronistic dialogue too and like things that are in there. It, it just feels like they like certain aesthetic aspects of a particular period. It wasn't, this is a 60s period segment. It's like, no, we, I mean, we just like some aspects that are in the 60s. We're going to throw it in there, but we're not making something that's diehard to this. Right. That's what it is. And he is doing such a great job. Honestly, that translate mm-hmm. that transcends like most of his stuff. He so. just has this like his own world. He should create a whole cinematic universe of just like this weird whatever time frame you want to call it. But mm-hmm. it probably shouldn't be locked into a certain era. Yeah, for me, that makes it so fun to watch and so fun you don't know to what's figure gonna out. It was so fun to figure out like what is the score to this? Because it's not just straight you do this. And honestly, likewise, I don't I think story-wise, yeah. it communicates something too. The one exception is that in the later segment, Babysitter Murders, mm-hmm. has that slasher film mm-hmm. that's like right. the 70s slap. Like that is boom. That mm-hmm. has a genre yeah. that's made in like 1978 or something. You know what I mean? Okay, like you yeah. can just tell. It's like a very specific like thing. made by the same team, by the yeah. way. But that is what we're talking about. Like that yeah. it's that the rest of the movie's not doing. So for the rest of the movie. Since it's not locked into a 1978 slasher movie, you don't know like what could happen. Yeah, I think there is a thing about that. Retro movies, it's communicating so much of that backbone of like what they're doing a take on yeah. that you a little bit know what's going to happen. Like, totally. there's a little bit of limit to that stuff. Mm-hmm. Dude, I'm glad you watched that. That movie's been a big deal for us like for a long time. Yeah, it was cool because so I I actually watch I watch a lot of horror anthologies. Oh, cool. And nice. Nice. honestly, the vast majority of them are, they're awful. Because a lot of the mm. times I think it's, you know, it's a really small production company that manages to get eight horror films and throws them together. And they usually get like different directors for the different segments, I think, sure. yeah. typically. And sometimes if you want it to be like what to me is, is like a true anthology, like, like a short fiction anthology of here's 15 short stories from 15 different authors, it can work, but it won't necessarily have an overriding thread through it yeah mm-hmm. and so honestly like most of the ones that i really enjoy are just some of the really cheesy ones from like the 60s and 70s with like vincent price and peter cushing because you know, look they're not scary but like they're just really fun yeah it's fun wait what is that oh man there there are so many of them one of them is the house that drips blood i think that might have been peter cushing and who else did i mention not vincent price but uh christopher lee oh yeah it was christopher lee and on the sure. spot, obviously, yeah, I can't yeah. think of them. But well, let's just do a quiz. Yeah, what exactly, exactly a pop quiz. Like <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I thought I was done with these. Dude, but we would not. fail. We were honestly so recently doing this kind of meeting where um, we wanted to study up, and then we just kind of realized, you know what? We're just we're not necessarily students and scholars of all this stuff. We're yeah. we're you know a little bit, but it's not really our job. Yeah, when it not. comes down to it, that's just what we like. And it, what we like is what we like, and what we make is really the more important thing. I don't yeah. think every maker of this stuff has to be a total scholar deep dive on like mm-hmm. everything. We have yeah. we have certain things we we can get crazy on, but sure. but you know how it is, dude. You talk you go talk to some cool movie people and it's just like, holy crap, I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> every meeting. I try to listen to like everything that comes out in a given year. I keep this is gonna sound nerdy, like I have a list of Everything I've listened to, the notes that I have on them as I listen to them. Great, yeah. But at the same time, it's like, if you quiz me and say like, oh, well, what did you like that came out in August? I'd be like, I have no idea. Or like, who scored this movie that came out two months ago? I'd be like, mm-hmm. I don't Dude, know. The brain is funny and I embrace that. I think yeah. that I'll be super ashamed. I, and right now it's happening too. It's fun to like come up with scores and whistle them based on what you love and stuff. 
I can't, this is a weird brain fart that I always have. Yeah. I can't conjure the Indiana Jones theme. Really? Yeah. <laughs> there you go. See, I, I can it. never, I have a weird, because one time I failed on the spot. Oh. And so I just like. So it's it's blocked yeah, in it's your blocked. brain. We all have blind spots. Yeah. I totally, totally embrace that. Why do, why do we need to like know every Bernard Herman and, right. you know, Morricone? We need to know enough to fall in love with it and try to get on their shoulders, but we don't have to do a deep dive and like, we're not scholars. It's different. I think part of it is the age that we are, where you had Tarantino starting like the mid 90s, early mid 90s. Mm -hmm. And as he got huge, it was like, oh, he's watched every single movie that anyone's ever even thought of. And that seemed like a norm of a good writer-director is also someone who's seen everything. And you have other guys, like Edgar Wright, has he's seen yeah. so many things. But it's like, that's yeah. not the norm. But they're they're so brilliant. And yeah. I love talking to these directors. Honestly, honestly, a lot of directors do yeah. have that kind of mind. I don't think they have sure. to. We would never be like, oh, so-and-so doesn't know. You know, it's not on our, on our yeah. agenda. But right. um, a lot of these directors really do have have mm -hmm. that insane mind. Yeah, so really cool, deep man. knowledge of all this stuff. Dude. Because imagine, like, we Even all have on the that... music side. It's like yeah. it's kind of intense to have a conversation with a director and who knows more about some of this stuff yeah. than we do. I mean, it's yeah. like okay, cool. But it, but you do kind of feel like ashamed a little bit, like, a little bit, kind yeah. of fake a couple. Yeah, I know what you're talking oh, about. Yeah, like yeah, I've heard Write that. Write that down to YouTube later. <laughs> yeah. We're starting to embrace. We're kind of hitting a new phase. Let's say we're in Mondo Boy's phase two, in which we're like, we're not trying to be trivia masters mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. film and music history we're trying to refine our process and right now we're actually yeah. experimenting but we're at least ex experimenting on the process and that could mean maybe different every movie but we're at least a little more aware of it and maybe that means jumping in early with the script train maybe it means like let's not worry about reading the script mm -hmm. we'll just kind of like wait for a cut you know because like we love it but we don't really know until the cut is in sure and uh we might all get confused and distracted if we're going based on the script. We're at least trying to find some of these methods that, that do help a lot because there's no need to just like what, what can easily happen is that you are dictated your schedule and you're dictated the whole process and um, people are just doing that because it's kind of the way it goes for their company, but there's a lot of different ways to do it. And if they find out that we are down to like engage more than usual, we can like change it up, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Everything ends up being like one crazy month, basically. Mm -hmm. Whether we have more time or not, if it's three months, we end up doing one crazy month. Even something like the Mortuary Collection, where it's we were working on it for three years, the last there month was, was yeah. a In that case, month. it was two months of like complete yeah. insanity, but probably one month that was like the month. Yeah. It's great though, because you just like are fully in it just the way for it that is. month or two. And that's all you're thinking about. All your writing is great. The film world, man, they're kind of desperate to get it done. That director's like been through hell right. shooting and they're just like, please, like they would love to hand off this baton. Yeah. You guys mentioned the timing of everything. And I'm sure some of that will depend on the film itself too. But for She Dies Tomorrow and some of the music sounds or it fits so well with the actual imagery because it, it seems like such an image focused film that it would just have to be hard to read the script and be like, oh, okay, we've we've got it and that's it. That seemed like a film where you had to be in the spotting session, like seeing what's unfolding in front of you and the, the specific imagery and just some of like the weird, bizarre intercuts that are throughout it and to know what's what music's going to fit. Well, like the hard cuts out, right? Yeah. That was the huge thing on, on that. That was very unique because Amy Simons had been creating that material and we had been working with her already on some things and we like really like her and really believe in her so when we knew that there was something that she was shooting we like tried to like okay well like here's some tunes <laughs> yeah you know yeah. not that she asked right and not that anyone was ready for it mm -hmm. but like like okay we, we have some score here yeah and uh we sent it over and we had seen some scenes kind of out of context i'm sure mm -hmm. i'm sure in reality she was showing the scenes 
knowing that maybe we could come up with some stuff. So it wasn't too much of a reach, but yeah, and this but it was, was different. before the movie was shot. And it wasn't a. F- there a was feature. like a scene or two that it was malleable for a while. So mm. we were sending in music really early there, and dude, she was so cool about allowing the music to maybe find a place in you know what she shoots. She allows, I think, a lot of different things to influence the shoot. In some cases, the music survived. We we sent an email with with some music based on what we had seen and maybe talked to her about it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like those tunes totally survived. And that was cut. very early on. I mean, we were kind of just making music that we were like, ideally, we could do something like this. Right. Some of those cues, <laughs> she just kind of makes it work. She's like, right. Okay. Yeah. I think she's also just takes any tools around and she's like, and she builds off of whatever's around. Yeah. It seemed like that from our perspective. So that was a unique experience, man. We were not really scoring to picture that much because she had tempted in our stuff. Yeah, it was And then really... we scored the picture for the flourishes and like to heighten right. this and that. But only like the last couple weeks we had picture to work with. Dude, you know what's weird? It's like it's been like a good year. That is almost what I wanted to start this conversation off oh, really? with. Is, <laughs> well, yeah, is to say, like, what the hell happened in 2020? Because I know you got you two had done, and not just like some projects, like some bigger projects. Yeah, dude. No, you're, you're right. Like, we've, we've really enjoyed working on really cool projects um, yeah. all the time. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's been good for the past, like, long time. But. Uh, it's kind of awkward. Yeah, but this, this year, year has been really. Twenty twenty was kind of dope for us as yeah. far as professionally, creatively, like totally. You know. And some of this, by the way, was in two thousand nineteen. Part of it is purely that this is the time of fruition for a lot of stuff we've been working on um, sure. before. That happens, and we're always aware of that. There's always like, dude, these are all like cycles of you know the creative process. Like right now, we're in this kind of harvest, and there's still more stuff coming out. It's true. In it, the next the, few months, it might be that we're really fluid in how we work and mm-hmm. we're super comfortable and like love working on just our own computers truly so during lockdown yeah there was a little bit of like some movies that were going through post and they didn't know how to approach music and they were like how are we going to do this we are 100 percent stoked to work just like here we yeah. can do a whole score right here yeah absolutely. And, um, and so that that helped i think there's a lot of composers who definitely could do that too but um, we were kind of right place, right time for a couple projects. Mm-hmm. Um, during lockdown, we did sort of the end of She Dies Tomorrow mm-hmm. and Run, Hide, Fight. Run, Hide, Fight. Which isn't coming out, but it went to Venice. And it was like a super crazy experience. Mm-hmm. And then um, Fat Man was totally in lockdown. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that might be it. There's probably some others too. I mean, Silk Road, I think we did it already. Even without lockdown, I think we have these great filmmakers that are around us and we've worked with before. And like everyone's kind of like coming of age in a way. In career-wise coming of age. And so there's just a lot of ripe fruit on the tree right now in our little network and like people in LA for like the kind of next generation of of LA. And so that probably would have been happening anyway. And then lockdown, let's just say it didn't affect it too much because we're able to be fluid. We were able to get plenty of stuff done. We love it, dude. Honestly, we we, we love working with orchestras. We love having people in and we'll do some sessions anywhere. Mm -hmm. But honestly, we can do it all like literally right here. Yeah. And uh, that's exciting to us. That's got to be the perfect setup for you guys then of like force you to be in that situation. Totally. And having kind of no shame with our collaborators. Yeah, we can 100% do the score. Um, Nothing was like 100% in the box except for maybe run, hide, fight. Will vocals on on the on the song? There were a few things, but that was most. But that was like almost all in the box. Yeah. So that was a situation where like everyone has to embrace it Mm because we always do embrace a lot of in the box. Yeah. Because this is just the truth that we sometimes dance around, sometimes don't dance around Mm -hmm. and try to encourage a filmmaker to embrace this. But there's so much cool stuff that you can do with, you know, models, like the the, the plugins that are like either their samples or their kind of models or Mm -hmm. um, the things that we can do in in here to complement that basically in the computer. You can do so much cool stuff. And to do an orchestra date, can also be great mm-hmm. and we're going to be doing a fun one coming up pretty soon but sometimes some composers can get a whole orchestra together and the sound can come out a little bit like bland sure. because you're just the orchestra is just the orchestra and you're just one person mm-hmm. so how do you get 
them to do something that's interesting to you, it can be hard. Yeah. And so the truth is we honestly feel that a lot of times we can do things in here that is 100% better than an orchestra date mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes. There's, there's times where, dude, getting, especially living in L.A. with these super talented orchestras that could just go great. It's yeah. like, honestly the most amazing thing for film music. Like mm-hmm. there's great orchestras in a lot of different cities, but for film music, L.A. is the best, like 100% Absolutely. The best. And so we do embrace that. But the truth is we can be intimidated by that. And a lot of composers are intimidated, whether they admit it or not. And so it becomes its own sound. But if we're working in here, we get our sound a little bit better. It does go back to that idea of flexibility and just being able to like, if you go in and record a session with a full orchestra, for us, that would be amazing. And then we take that back to our studio and we say, okay, do we want to keep it as is or do we want to? Yeah, flip add it to it, down, mess with it. it. We've got to mess with it. Like, yeah. You have to. Yeah. You, you know, what happens in that six-hour span is yeah. great, but like that's not what the score is now. Yeah. Those scores are boring. Mm-hmm. Unless you really have your orchestra, which we hope to one day, and like know how to get all this interesting stuff mm-hmm. out of it, which great composers and conductors do. For a lot of composers, you just you think, great, orchestra day. It's going to be great. And it's going to be great fidelity-wise. And the playing is going to be totally top-notch. But it's going to be just a little bit, like, not unique. Yeah. There's a lot of situations where with a hybrid of great players Mm -hmm. and what we do in the studio, the hybrid is going to be probably the better thing for that movie. But a lot of times with the filmmaker, it's not a blind test. They don't just hear music and uh, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. It's always like, is this real or is this uh, not real? And we're like, well, what does that mean? You know, it's like, it's kind (laughs) of complicated. Yeah. And is it good or not? That should be the thing. Like, does it work or not? That's what it comes down to. But honestly, a lot of new new filmmakers totally embrace this stuff. The name that everyone knows recently, I mean, recently of like that orchestral film score is John Williams. But mm-hmm. oh, yeah. well, he started music. off doing jazz music and big band yeah. before yeah. he was doing film music. Right. It wasn't like he was a film scorer who then was like, okay, how do I figure out how to do an orchestra? Mm. Like, he already right. knew how to do that. He was so well versed in it. So it, it mm. makes sense that it's not like not to say that a lot of film scores aren't good at that but like it's not something that they've been doing for years and years because like he had done that for however long before moving into film music yeah yeah just in a different context dude we got to have a hangout with don williams yeah his, his brother. brother john williams's brother baby brother dude it's so cool man he was just so because don williams is a great timpani player mm-hmm. other percussion yeah and he like plays he's on been, dude everything. he's been part of like all these great he's it's he's crazy. part of this legacy crew yeah of people that work with every, literally everybody. Yeah. And so Don Williams, uh, to hang out and talk with him about stuff, he was telling us really cool stories. And um, John Williams, what was it? I'm going to say it wrong, but it was a cool thing like that he was kind of on call for like, what is it, like Adam's family or something? Like Universal was like, hey, like composer was fired or busy or something. We yeah. need someone to come in and like do like a one week thing to create the whole season's worth of music or something. Right. Like crazy. Okay, yeah. And John Williams ready to go. Done. Like boom. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just workmen, craftsmen. Sure. And uh, you got to imagine like that's cutting your teeth to the nth degree, like better than Absolutely. anything else yeah. would. I know he was a, yeah, I know he was a jazz guy, mm-hmm. dude, but you know, same with like Fincher, just kind of finding Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, Spielberg finding John Williams. Dude, I guess Jaws was before Star Wars, I think. I think it was Jaws and then Star Wars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. So I think it was Spielberg, I think, that, that kind of found yeah, it. Yeah, it was. Dude, it's so crazy. He'd done a couple smaller films. I know he did In the Valley of the Dolls, Cinderella Liberty, that were much more jazzier. John Williams did In the Valley of the Dolls? Well, he was also doing TV and stuff. I hope so, or else I'm going to sound like a just an idiot. Roger Ebert's script. I think that's Valley of the Dolls Part 2. Wait, Roger really? Ebert, Ebert wrote a script. Yeah. I didn't know that. Ebert wrote a script for Valley of the Dolls Part what? 2. Totally <laughs> Grindhouse. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Nice. I know, and he wrote it. It's amazing. Now I know what I'm watching this weekend. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know what's funny, though, is it totally makes sense to me. Because if you read Roger Ebert's review of Black Dynamite, the first thing I think Roger Ebert talks about is how aesthetically perfect 
the shape of breasts are. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> Raj. Dude. Oh, man. You know, he's a, he's, he was like such an illuminating critic. And it's like with this movie, Mank, we mm. ended up having a big conversation about Pauline Kale. Also another like just critic that transcends critics. But like the Ebert thing is pretty interesting. He's pretty freaking on point almost all the time, including the shape of breasts being pretty top notch. Yeah. And um, I don't I don't know, man, seeing a lot of the, the critics and the analysis and stuff lately, it's like I don't think it speaks to what we were yeah. up to a lot of the time, especially with the horror stuff. It's right. funny. Right. Just how it all plays out. It's not like we were doing horror stuff. Yeah. I right. don't think. And I don't think the directors were either. I don't think that's just True. a music thing. I think yeah. like I think we need to rethink some of these genres, dude. I mean, not that it's up to us, but like it kind of relates to like when a um, producer or a director is going to approach us and they want to tell us what it is without us seeing you know anything or like reading a script or anything. They kind of just go to genre, and it's funny how we're like, okay, right, right, it makes sense, but like we still don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. They can talk about what it is in their world maybe market wise and stuff like that but it's like we have still zero idea what music is going to like work in this yeah like it really absolutely. is going to be talking to the director about stuff like that weird stuff that is kind of not defined but usually in a conversation it'll like kind of come out like what yeah. you're going for people think oh this composer can do um their action or this composer does like the romance stuff but honestly i don't think that's the most you know real way of how everyone's working it's like mm-hmm. It's weirder stuff than that. And so we honestly steep ourselves in like story structure and filmmaking on, on every level. It's definitely not the case that we feel like we just have this thing that will plug in right. to some movies. Maybe like if we have a huge hit movie, like we have our version of like some Star Wars thing or something, then everyone wants to hire us for a thing. Maybe we could end up having a thing. Sure. But... I don't know if we're rushing into that because it's really fun to make music that's different every time. We think we do music that's really pretty different every time and we don't know why we would do anything different. You know, it's super fun. Yeah. Because movies are different. Every movie is different. Yeah. Why would we like do one thing? Every every piece of the movie is different. And so it's so fun to figure out every where we fit in and like what we do. It's the tone of voice. If the tone of voice is different, then the melody yeah. has to be different. Yeah. So like we can't like plug in our old stuff. As far as the genre mix goes, like I said, I watched Fat Men today. Like I listened to She's in Portland and Mortuary Collection again today. And you can oh, hear nice. some little aspects that might carry through from one score to another, but it's not like this is Mondo Boy's sound. And even when you watch Fat Man, there are like three or four different genres that you two use throughout it you're not even looking across scores it's like within score that's not a single palette every sort of aspect has a different sound that's going to fit with it a lot of that is filmmaker driven right so Mm -hmm. they come to us we don't dictate to them what's got to happen in in this story we kind of have a little bit of a beginner's mind about it so we love to especially the the nelms brothers with fat man Mm -hmm. were totally wanted to know like they wanted notes on yeah, like their cut. Right. And we were just like not <laughs> in that zone. I mean, like they wanted to go deep dive. They wanted notes. They wanted to like know what we thought of it. And we don't really do that. Yeah. We just don't want to do that because the filmmaker knows in a way that's better than us. There are things that we can contribute since we didn't have the vision from the script like they do. So mm-hmm. we can see what they shot and kind of evaluate that uniquely and we can definitely provide some insights on how music can work with their story not talking about like oh this scene is scary let's do scary music this scene is uh, sad let's do sad music that's like not interesting but as far as how music can be a character in the story we, we might have some ideas it's an interplay and as far as fat man like it, it really is like three different genres i guess it is complicated i do agree somewhere in there it's three genres but that was them i'm just saying that that was them that was the filmmakers yeah because this happens when even when you have distinct themes in a Mm -hmm. film the really complex way to do it is is when the themes start morphing into one another so like even if you have different palettes like that's the best right mm -hmm. yeah they will join together at times or be separate to give an accentuation that so yeah we have no problem getting crazy for 
different sounds for different sequences yeah. because we know that we will pull it together when it needs to be pulled together. We love to tie it together at some mm-hmm. point. It's all got to be cohesive and holistic. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I never fear like the filmmaker that wants seemingly impossible threads to connect. Sure. We can connect them. And, and yeah. honestly, it'll make fun stuff when we do eventually connect these crazy different threads. Right, right. Um, but yeah, but a lot of these directions, man, like Fat Man, it's the Nelms brothers who knew how it was going to sound. We totally try to like throw out ideas and stuff and we take shots and uh, mm-hmm. we, we try to like give them alternate ideas. And on some movies, I guess we're more part of the genesis of it. It's totally the director that tells us what to do. And we're like, great. Okay, if that's what it is, then like here's the different versions of it. Right, and, yeah. uh, you know, you pick, you know, we'll yeah. give you some options. We might fight for some things here and there. But like the truth is, man, we we so respect these directors because we end up doing our little battles during the making of the scores and stuff. But then when we watch it with an audience for the first time and we like fully watch the movie, yep. <laughs> we're like, oh, right. The they director right like, there. Yeah. Mm, totally knows <laughs> the movie like, <laughs> yeah. very well. And so we're always rewarded to follow the director. You right. know? They, they do know the story because, dude, the brain has a hard time with a two hour intimate experience like to predict it and to kind of Mm -hmm. piece it all together when you're doing one cue for three days to have this two-hour experience is like kind of a lot and really i think only the director really knows what that trance that that dream is like Mm -hmm. and so we listen to them uh about the fine details about how this transition should work and stuff we have our take on it but like we're we're always rewarded to like listen to the filmmakers uh, the director, because it's a dream. It's a trance. We always think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Like these movies, especially, are it's a trance. You you first have to get hooked, and then you kind of go into that state, and then you're just kind of like in a dream for two hours. And that experience has to be pretty seamless. At least mm-hmm. the hook has to be seamless. Yeah. Like you have to be really bought in in about definitely 10 minutes. And only really the director is the one who is sort of like the shaman for that experience. So we just listen to them and we try to help, try to offer some ideas. But like we we trust them as, as like the shaman. Yeah. It really is what it's like. This was great. And like I said, I think you guys have already blown up in 2020. So I want to schedule an addendum to this because I'm excited to see what 2021 and beyond has in store for you too. Thanks for talking to us, man. Yeah, we really we appreciate it. It's been fun.